0: Marco Uh He is uh, heavily involved in PyCon as well as the Python language in general. Uh, I know him from PyCon, and uh, if you ever go to PyCon, you probably have seen him around. Uh, he's also been very involved with computers in general since their early inception of Unix and Unicode, and he's been using Python since... Uh, what was the first version of Python that you used? Would you I, say one?
1: I remember 1.6. 1.
0: 1.6. 1. 6. So that's like before Booleans were added to the language. You had to use zeros and ones instead of
1: true and false. So yep. just to give well, you an coming, idea. Yeah, coming from Fortran and C, that seemed perfectly natural. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, you also specialize in in understanding human beings and teams and relationships and uh, focusing on understanding those from a systems perspective. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll say it this way. Uh, when I was in high school, which is a really long time ago, um, my well, there's three favorite uh, magazines that I subscribed to then, but two of them pertinent to this discussion. The very first issue of Psychology Today, I subscribed to that magazine and to Scientific American. And I think that still characterizes my interests now. So psychology in the 60s for me in high school meant that I had to figure out why when I was a kid people called me a commie and would chase me down alleys just because of my name. It didn't make sense to me, so psychology became (laughs) became interesting and became a mode of survival, but it also became something that was curious for me. And technology, my dad was an engineer who would always explain things to me. I worked on pit crews. As a matter of fact, working on race cars and pit crews is how I finally decided to go into engineering. I hadn't intended on being like my dad at all, and he was an engineer, so I was never going to get close to it. Wrong. I
0: find it fascinating that era of psychology because uh, I have bipolar disorder and I, I don't take lithium anymore. I now take a drug called Abilify, which is very new. It came out in like 2006, but I was taking lithium and it came out in the 60s. And it's still one of the most prescribed bipolar medications there is. And uh, we still don't know exactly how it works. But yeah, we discovered yeah. it in the 60s, I believe.
1: Yeah, it's a very wide uh, um, uh in fact, uh, a broad-range uh, 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 medication. One, one of the people is, uh, well, I guess I'll just start in on the psychology. One of the people that I um, love his work is uh, Yak Panksep, who's uh, uh, with a university, I don't remember which one off the top of my head, in Ohio. He also teaches in Washington State. He's been doing... Uh, Research neurobiology for 40 years, and he's identified uh, some specific brain structures uh, that uh, I think of as our uh, instinct, but he calls them the affective brain systems. And affect in psychology is another word for core emotions. And basically his neurobiological research showed that 50s and 60s psychologists kind of got affect wrong they got about three quarters of it right but they conflated a few things and he showed it through um, uh, neuroscience and he's through that kind of work finding more and more specifically which parts of the brain are responsible for which things and he's pushing through right now a couple of uh, uh, neuroactive drugs and no one i've seen on a ted talk him talking about is on uh, uh, a targeting depression that works very specifically and has no side effects because of its specificity. So I think, I think the more we learn, it's sort of like, um,
0: I'm always really fascinated to cause, cause of my own personal experiences that I've had, um, to, um, to really come to a realization of how little we do know about certain things. Like I had certain experiences during a manic episode that led me down a research path, and I realized that I, I came across cutting-edge neuroscience that was explaining what I experienced, and this is stuff that isn't in the medical field yet. You know, it's, it's still in cutting-edge neuroscience about precept switches and the way it works in the bipolar brain and the visual cortex being different, and this is stuff that isn't going to reach medical science probably for another 10 or 12 years and uh it's yeah. really cool it's really fascinating to me that i am able to come to those conclusions and un- have those understandings because i have those experiences and a doctor doesn't necessarily have those insights because they don't have those experiences uh but we're i think we're kind of always playing catch up i think we have a a long way to go when it comes to psychology and neuroscience and we're making leaps and bounds
1: yes we are i and and what you said also uh uh Rings true for my 91-year-old mother died a couple of years back, and uh, I had her, I was visiting her in a hospital, and they wanted to put her on antipsychotics, and I questioned it because there were some really powerful drugs. But she was, having, yeah. she was having hallucinations. And since I know her, I said, well, I saw this come on, and you guys spotted her white count shoot up, and now oh. she's on intravenous antibiotics, and I'm, because I know her so intimately, I'm watching her hallucinations, her psychotic event, receding, even though you don't yet recognize it. And within gotcha. eight hours, it completely receded to nothing. And That's fantastic. It was, it, and it was that same summer that a PhD student in uh, somewhere in the East Coast, I forget, but there were first published papers about the lymphatic uh, ducts in the brain, which were always thought to not exist there. He accidentally found it because he dissected a uh, a laboratory mouse's brain differently than usually, and he found this flat, collapsed channel. And the article that I saw right as my mom was going through this said, well, uh, in elderly people, the collapse of this very broad and flat lymphatic channel probably prevents the body from taking away the proteins that build up from infections, which could have a lot of implications for Alzheimer's treatment, because rather than treat the symptoms of an accumulation of plaques, we can treat the prevention of the accumulation of plaques now that we know there's the system there. And they described exactly the behaviors that I'd been seeing like a month before I read this article. And I remember arguing with the head at Rush University in Chicago, the head of the geriatric psych unit, about how she didn't know what she was talking about. (laughs) And I pointed her off to the research papers, and I had to eventually, I had to remove my mother from that hospital because they were over-medicating because they didn't understand things. It's like, well, if we don't know what's going on, we'll numb you out until you don't um, yeah, just void the system. symptom. In
0: my own experience, that's something that often happens with MDs. Uh, they they just diagnose and they just. Yeah, but uh, I've had great experiences with something called an osteopath, uh, and that's a different type of doctor. That's like an MD, except for they take a more holistic approach. Yes. Um, and so, if you're ever in a situation like that, I definitely recommend seeking out an osteopath if you have the option. Because usually, there's like, you know, if you're in like a psych ward, there's usually one of each. Uh, available. Yeah. <laughs> and you if know, you can the funny get the osteopath, I highly recommend them because they're, they're much less diagnostic and more, uh, lo- let's look at the whole person and see what's really going on, you know, instead of just like, I'll oh, give them the drugs. You know what I mean?
1: So th- it, hopefully this will help virus into a little tech and, and programming talk. So the thing that was interesting for me with my mom's hospitalization around Rush university is the geriatric site psych- director and the MDs working for her were insistent that they knew what they were doing. And yet the medical doctors that would come by on their rounds to check on mom's uh, white count and basically infections, when I showed them the articles, they were very much on my side. And I wound up having three non-geriatric psych doctors arguing with the geriatric psych ward uh, on my side. And so this concept of specialization makes you stubborn and blind is a really important concept in tech teams, too. I think it's a really uh, uh, fundamental way that uh, teams tend to, um, when they're competent, when teams are competent, when someone is competent and part of a team, when you automatically go to a solution that's worked very often in the past, you tend to be more closed to broader inspection of symptoms and to alternate, uh, diagnoses, if you will. Yeah. And, and, and I think, uh, I know I've talked with Brett Cannon about, um, uh, just informally about, um, uh, uh, getting more, uh, women involved on the Python core team and how do you do that? And, and we had. I,
0: I believe, isn't there like one official woman in the core committee team now?
1: I think there's one or two. I know Brett just uh, posted something recently that he uh, tried to encourage uh, one. And the message is um, there was an ACM article uh, in uh, a Communications of the ACM, January of 2012, called uh, The Difference. Which recounted how a recruiting team, uh, uh, headhunters, put together a team for a tech project, but they misread the requirements, so they wound up hiring people that weren't skilled uh, in a way that matched what the product needs were, and then they adjusted. They wound up with a team with some experts and some novices that had to learn how to do what they were going to do because they were already hired and the article basically said, you know, a team of mixed skilled people outperforms teams of experts and the reason
0: exactly
1: mm. that if i don't if i'm not in the rut you're in i won't know not to ask the questions uh that sound like are you really sure this is what it is because i'm seeing something different and that's what breaks teams out of uh ruts and makes them basically perform better so i've noticed
0: that at my company um at, when we were very small, I, I was hired on probably employee number 40 or so. And now we're at like 250. And it, it's not that we we're becoming less expert, but as we've grown, our the, the diversity of specialization yes. in our hiring has, has increased so broadly. Like we have whole groups of people dedicated to sales and stuff like that. Just that it seems as though that that there's a lot more questions that get raised because you have to explain something to the whole organization um, that that is a you know comprehensive, and it seems that that gives you a much better awareness of what you're building and why it's important. Um, and and what you shouldn't when be... everyone's on the same page and everyone's an engineer, then then we kind of got in this bad rabbit hole. Not talking badly of the company. This is like four or five years ago um but there we had we had this like real like we're the best type of mentality and and we would we we, we kind of didn't we didn't build things quickly you know and we didn't iterate and we didn't improve because we, we were like we're amazing we're great we're gonna stay this way and like we were so afraid to make any changes And now there's this broad changes happening all the time and and it's happening at such a rapid pace. And it's quite impressive to me how that change in diversity really does seem to really improve the status quo.
1: It can. It can do the opposite, too. So it takes diversity and the skills to operate in that diverse environment. So there's this is uh, uh, Ken. this is something that really uh, uh, has fascinated me since. You yeah almost. it definitely
0: wasn't without its growing pains, that's for sure. yeah, yeah. I mean so we, the, from it, the psychology- It
1: involves a lot of
0: orchestration from the people who are in charge of putting together the teams, I think.
1: Yes, but it also requires something of the teams. This is the kind of stuff I talked with Brett about when trying to get a new member on board, you have to be um, open and not critical of the person but instructive about the task at hand. And that difference is key because, um, because you have something to learn from that person. Maybe exactly. And, and if I do something, if I implement a protocol wrong and you point out to me something I wasn't aware of, I've gained and you've gained and we develop a partnership. And if it's placed in the right way, I trust to ask you again the next time I work on something because I've had an experience of mutual benefit. Uh,
0: but yeah, I have someone on my team in particular that I really enjoy working with, and he's very—he's uh, well, very German, <laughs> so he—he he likes to build things in an extremely uh, I'll, i wanna, i want to—I don't want to say extremely best practices way detail. Um, Extremely detail oriented, yes, yeah, like specific. excessively. Um, but that's really, that's a really great strength because, you know, there's no, nothing falls through the cracks, but it's like so much extra work. And I'm usually the opposite, where I'm like, oh, well, we could just not do that at all. And this is, won't be a problem. <laughs> and uh, we really balance each other out in that way. Uh, so we really enjoy working together, but it we're always, we're not butting heads as much as we are like, Pleasantly arguing, if that makes sense.
1: Yes, yes, it makes a lot of sense because arguing about a topic is wow. This is um, this is the social equivalent of um, encapsulation and coding, right? I uh, uh, can give you access to my private variables. I can display them for you. I can uh, choose what I expose. And as long as you don't try and come into my object or class and change those variables in me, if you re-implement and show me a different outcome, I can choose to change my class. But as long as you don't try to do it, in other words, if you don't try to get global about it, then it works, right? Yeah. And, Yeah, And simplicity is the other piece, and this is what you just mentioned with your coworker. And And I was going to actually mention... Uh, in the context of teams, not only do you have to not try and get global in terms of global variables, in terms of uh, getting into somebody's business and the difference between the arco, you got that wrong. The protocol requires this, but you missed that.
0: On my team, it often looks like, well, the best way to do it is this way. So all of us should be doing it this way.
1: Yeah, the best way is speaking for everybody, so that's when you have experts, that happens. I do it this way because I found it best is speaking from the expertise of me, and it leaves the door open for you to say, yeah, I usually do too, except this time this situation leads me to the other thing. And if I haven't stated it is the best but is my best way, then I'm open to socially say, ah, I hadn't thought of that before, thank you. I just picked something yes. up. Yes, exactly. Exactly, and and so, and and these things are playing out actually in our politics right now. I don't know, uh, this is getting a little broad, but it's I think pertinent, um, because um, what I'm hearing recently about uh, immigration services that I see that's going around and doing uh, just rounding up people uh, in large scale around cities. The uh, global versus encapsulated version is showing up. I saw something today about some kid in Washington State uh, where his lawyer filed that ICE had said he was part of a gang, but they actually edited the statement he made and signed. And, And the court filing showed how it was erased. You could see what was there before it was erased even. So that, when it mimics... The I-know-everything attitude from the top, that spreads through a a team. It spreads through an organization, and there's evidence of it. When you you build a system, a programming system, and you have global variables everywhere that anybody can touch, anybody's action spreads its effect, usually not beneficially, throughout the whole system. And this is why we don't like Ruby. This is why the more connections you get, the larger your team or the more complex your system, the more important simplicity and clarity is, which gets to your point what you mentioned a minute ago about your German coworker who likes to get into detail and lots of stuff, and you trying to figure out what not to do and make it simple like requests does. Uh, what's going on in Python uh, currently with the AsyncIO library versus uh, Dave Beasley's Curio, where Dave says, I can't get my head around all this. It's it's, it's too difficult. Let's just do this simple executive model. And those-
0: Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Curio and wh- how it differs from AsyncIO? Because um, I think a lot of them might not be familiar with it.
1: Uh, there's, um, it first of all, Curio is evolving, but it started out, I think, with... Uh, uh, Dave Beasley, uh, what he, what he, and does. if you're not
0: familiar with David Beasley, by the way, he is effectively a genius.
1: Well, he's the he's the <laughs> author. He's the original author of Swig. He's a one-time. He's a Ph.D. in uh, mathematics. I think he's a one-time. Uh, Computer science professor from University of Chicago, and and,
0: that, and his uh, tutorial every year at PyCon is always the like the one to hit if you want to go get your mind blown.
1: Yes, and his uh, most recent this past summer he came out with Pearson with a video series programming in Python, which is sort of an intermediate series, and uh, uh, it quickly within months hit uh, number one ranking on Safari Online and other things and to tie this back to the simplicity and social systems thing. The striking thing about his video is there's lessons, you can think of them as chapters in a book, and each of the lessons has, I don't know, three to five uh, subsections, which are videos, and they're three to five minutes long. They're small and digestible. You can stop and practice them before you go on to the next tiny chunk and I've known Dave
0: just it's a like it's like the Dave Beasley masterclass, basically
1: yeah yeah it, yeah you can you can if you don't know Dave Beasley you can look at a lot of his talks and papers uh, on uh, da bazcom the bees he's got a uh, 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 lots of uh, talk on uh, uh, talks online and free sort of uh, course material for uh, decorators he had a whole series i think over four three or four years in pycon and decorators uh he's written uh apply which is now uh, for python 3.5 called sly but it's a a p-l-y python lux and yak so he's basically written a parser generator in python to show how it's done and he has courses in that
0: and i tried to use that once and i just cannot wrap my head around parsing i don't know what it is yeah well, that so, is some complicated stuff
1: so one of the things so getting back to async and async i o versus uh how Curio started, Dave was um complaining that he couldn't get his head around async i o and async I think was um uh Guido von Rossum's uh effort to o- originally unify- called tulip yes, to unify all the people uh, uh for example, uh, that it had... Towards the
0: G event eventlet, the yes, idea yes. All is the basically... there there
1: are various solutions to try and get asynchronous programming into Python 2. And, and the Guido idea is said, you
0: have one API and then you could switch out any of the backends and it comes with the right. default one.
1: Right. And so the, the picture there is there's all these existing solutions on the sort of outside of the shell. Then there's this Python core at the center and then this layer of library, which now is asyncio. Which tries to unify all those various approaches, which means, from an API perspective, that it's trying to expose the things that uh, those various libraries need.
0: Now, and- I haven't e- written any code with asyncio, but I've seen like the HTTP. Async I/O code and it, it looks very straightforward to me. They just have the await keyword, which basically means release the the I/O loop, you know, and uh, there's a few other ones, and it it seems like a straightforward approach to me. What does Curio do differently?
1: Well, Curio doesn't support callbacks, and Curio runs from a very much like an operating system for, from an executive, so you can monitor. You can cancel tasks. You can
0: see oh. what's going on
1: from tasks, and and it works very much like a regular. Um, uh, uh,
0: now, is it compatible with async I/O? W- w-
1: um, there's, um, I would say that there's a good one, and maybe you can. We I don't know how do we put this probably a good start to this was uh, Nathaniel Smith uh, made a very long uh, blog post comparing the two and comparing various small solutions like uh, uh, doing uh, a simple proxy server, you know, one implementation in AsyncIO and another in Curio and then showing how they're similar and yet how they're different. And uh, that's a really good thing to digest. It's a... Uh, If you, uh, it's on vorpusorg slash blog slash some thoughts on an asynchronous API design. Uh, Or if you just Google uh, async.io versus Curio, I think that's the top thing that comes up. Uh, And it's a really good read, and it started a lot of discussion in in the Python community about ease of programming and what do you really need versus... uh, the net that captures all the existing async paradigms to try and bring them closer into the center and pipe.
0: Yeah, so, I'm looking at the Q and A right now on the on the GitHub repo, and it says here that it's a standalone library that is for polling I O events, uh, and it uses the same basic machinery as async I O, but it is not carried out in the same manner. So it is not. It has. Overlapping functionality, but the API is different, and the compatibility is not a goal. But it does says that it runs seventy five to one hundred and fifty percent faster.
1: Uh, it is oh oh there, when so so and it's about the
0: same speed as G event, so that should give you a good idea. And, and, it's in and G Python. event,
1: by the way, is compiled, so that should be impressive.
0: Yes, yeah, so, and Curio has no comp. There's no C in it no, at all. No, no, no. No, okay, so Dave that makes me purist. extremely
1: interested in
0: yes. getting a curio backend for um, uh, uh, G-Unicorn, for example.
1: So so Dave was complaining to me privately about AsyncIO and not being able to teach it for a long time. For a long time, For we'd meet for coffee or lunches in Chicago, and uh, uh, sometimes here's basically dave became a great friend when my mother was in the hospitals in and out for almost a year before she died and when she died i was like i'm the only kid the last one and he would call me up and say you know to get me out of the house and say hey i got a class running i said oh do you have a seat to fill he says no i just want you to come here to make trouble i mean he would just he would just do it to get me out of the house and i'd be pretty much i don't want to see people i'm in a funk and He'd say, you know, and we do blah, 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 whatever this way in his Python class. And then he'd just say, what do you think, Yarko? Do you agree? And I would just like out of my stupor look up and say, yeah, but there's another way of looking at it. And then we'd have this discussion where we'd argue and come to, uh, I don't know, it would be a useful, it would be like, exactly like he said, it would be a useful expanding of the uh, circle of the way of looking at whatever, some particular thing. And even later, months later, I would see students that I hadn't known at all, except in those classes, somewhere on the CTA that would say hi and talk about how great that discussion uh, was for them in that class, how it enhanced the class form. So uh, I think uh, I think this is really important. So this is
0: really cutting-edge Python. You've been doing Python for forever. What is, like, what, how, does it, how has it felt to have been using Python since at least six? and seen it evolve to two, six, two, seven, and then like C three come out and three, six. How is that felt? And how do you feel about the current state of affairs with the migration between two and three? Do you have a good feel for where things are at? Or are you, are you worried about the future of Python at
1: all? No, I'm actually not, but I'm also uh, very opinionated. Uh, uh, Kenneth, I've, uh, it, when I, used Python 1.6. I played with it. I would visit it and do small things and look at things like Zope and try to write my own things, and some things would be useful. I had a team that I managed that worked in Java. I didn't really like Java. It was early, and I did some stuff off on the side in Perl, and I uh, I worked on Unix, so I actually was on the standardization committees for actually command line utilities. So I knew a lot of shell programming and so forth and a lot of small tools.
0: Oh, so were you part of the people who came up with the POSIX standard for
1: the help output? I was on, POSIX, on the POSIX2 committee with David Korn, actually.
0: So I, was, I didn't know this until the DocOpt library came out. Are you familiar with DocOpt? Uh-huh. DocOpt is fantastic for anyone who's listening and uh, who doesn't know about it. Uh, it turns out that when you do like a command dash H or dash dash help and it prints out, you know, the, the arguments and sometimes there's like brackets and sometimes there's like a dot 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 and all this stuff. Yes. that That is a standard, uh, a Unix standard. And it takes all you have to do is write the help string and then it generates all the parsing code for you for your command line arguments. Yeah, isn't so, that nice? For very simple things, I use click for more uh, robust things that have like subcommands and stuff like that. Like for my new library um, or my new CLI app, um, pipenv, which everyone should check out.
1: Yes, I've Uh, seen that. I need to check it out too.
0: Yeah, pipenv is fantastic. It combines uh, virtualenv and pip together into one tool as well as a new standard that's evolving from pip that's going to be put into pip called pipfile. Um, and it gives you deterministic builds and it creates a virtual end for you automatically. And it gives you some really, it just makes workflow so much better. Um, so it's called PIP and P I P E N V. Uh, I highly recommend all our listeners check it out. Um, it has almost 3000 stars on GitHub now. So it's, uh, it's right. becoming quite popular and I have a co-contributor, so it's nice and sustainable. Uh, but I use click for that project because it has, you know, it's, it's, it needs some robustness to the way that it works. Um, but for real simple things that are just like, this is a simple command line application, doc opt is the way to go. And it turns out that there's an ANSI standard for that help thing, for the help string that is outputted. And I guess, Yarko, you were involved in, in that type of standardization?
1: Yeah, it was in that standardization committee, yeah.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. So. I had no idea that there was even a standard around that because my experience to Linux was, you know, I was a kid and there my dad... There was no Linux
1: when that was going on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. My, my experience was, you know, my, my dad was uh, a programmer when I was growing up and he got me turned on to Linux when I was a kid and I was probably using like Red Hat 4 or something like that. Oh. Back when it was free and, uh, you know, the real version of Red Hat was free. And, um, and so, you know, I got really early exposure to, for, for my age, I got very early exposure to, to VI and, and all those tools and stuff when I was probably like in fifth or sixth grade. Um, and I've been using those tools since then, but so, so my historical understanding of Things like, you know, oh, there's a standard behind this and that is kind of skewed. So I was really surprised when I found out that there was actually a standard behind that. Yeah. Uh, but to you, that probably makes total sense. They'd probably yeah. be like, why isn't there, why wouldn't there be a standard, right?
1: Right. So getting back to the what do I think about Python and future, um, uh, and I said, well, at Python 1.6, I was forced to use Perl. I didn't really like it, but it was used in a lot of build stuff. Oh, so
0: Python wasn't in part of the Linux standard base at that time, was it?
1: No. No, there uh, was no Linux
0: standard base. There was no Linux. There was no Linux. No Linux. Yeah. There, was
1: yeah, no there was no Linux. No, okay. no I'm uh, uh, oh, sorry. I, I forget when Linus was in school, but basically... You're blowing my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but back then, my favorite tool for crafting up things, well, it's either the shell uh, you know, pipeline of command or, or, or a shell script or awk. Was Wait, now, a good were you using thing. Bash at this point? or uh, No, I was using SH or KSH. David Korn's, uh, David Korn's KSH was standardized in POSIX, and I think Bash oh. picked up a lot of those things because it really extended. There was a time where it was either I remember
0: between... seeing KSH a lot when I was a kid, but I never used it.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, Bash picked up a lot of those things and extended on them and between the uh, the original shell was sh so getting back to this original stuff a lot of the unix tools when i worked on um, unix version 6 version 6 on a pdp 11 gosh i remember putting in for uh electrical engineering department labs for the people that come in i worked in the lab as a student and it's like oh Doctor so and so's people are coming in for the lab. You got to put in the disk in the PDP for them. Then it would be a ten megabyte hard drive. Wow, you
0: know, when, was cartridge. it a Winch-
1: Winchester drive or? Well, it'd be a twelve-inch big, you know, uh, ceramic oh, platter. Way before then, yeah, okay. way before then. And back then, every program that ran had sixteen k of I space and sixteen k of D space. You got. 16K in memory, that's it for your instructions and 16K for your dynamic RAM for for data, for variables and so forth. And if you couldn't get it in within then, that's when you did a pipeline to the next thing, and you'd suspend and spin up a new thing. And then writing the disk was really slow. (laughs) So this is what drove the pipeline. So learning how to assemble small little things is one of the things that Unix drove. Awk got good at that, and... Perl, I think, got too messy in that. And Python, I think, got good in that. So back to the do I have any faith in Python, it's like, well, or in Python's future, it's like, well, Python 2. I think 2 is when I started using it really seriously. And Python 2.7's is okay. And I've kind of been on the periphery of watching the bumps of getting people to try Python 3. And I think probably with Python 3.3, I started using it. And within the last two years, I just keep, I mean, maybe even in advance, I've been telling people you're using the language formerly known as Python. That's that Python 2 thing. That's absolutely you should be using Python 3. And people look at me funny and complain. And I say, well, you know, you keep talking about how difficult it is to port from 2 to 3. Why don't you just start and write your stuff in 3? And if you need 2 compatibility, port backwards. That's a much simpler task. And people look at me funny, but that's sort of my position with Python 3.5. I agree.
0: I think that people, if they're starting new projects that are like going to be deployed, that they should be writing them in 3. Yeah. And I just recently, just this last two weeks, I made Python 3 the default on my OSX system. So now whenever I start a new virtual M, for example, uh, it uses 3.0 by default. And the only thing that still gets me is the print statement, because I use that for debugging. That's how I debug everything is a print statement. And, you uh, don't use logs? No, definitely <laughs> not. Definitely not. I hate the logging library. And, uh, and you know, it's very, uh, I, I really liked the print statement. And it was very easy to just add it and remove it from almost any line. And, it's, and having to add those parens is really kind of a bummer for me. Uh, well, it, it actually really interrupts my workflow quite a bit and I'm got, I'm getting used to it but it, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it actually really does slow me down quite a bit so I think that was not an improvement to the language I think it would be nice if they could have somehow made it both a <laughs> statement and a function at the same time I think that would have been a better enhancement um, and I also often get into a, a spot where I'm writing code that needs to run on both 3 and 2 at the same time and when that happens Uh, dealing with bytes and strings is an absolute nightmare. Like when I coded, uh, when I added Python three support to requests, uh, it was (coughs) probably the most difficult coding challenge of my life. Hey, Kenneth. And, uh, but I did it and I did it way early before that was the cool thing to do. So,
1: (laughs) yeah. So I'm, I got a tickle in my throat. I'm going to step away to grab a glass of water. I will ask you though, which uh, Python 3 you're using? Oh three six. Oh okay. So have you used F strings? Because I think that makes up for the parens. I don't know.
0: I have you know, I seen I saw the pep for F strings and I don't like them. Um they didn't they rubbed me the wrong way. I have to look them up again. Um let me look Google them now. F strings python three six. The thing I don't like about them is that you know, Python's all about explicit over implicit. And it is grabbing.
1: Be right back. It is
0: it is grabbing assignments from uh from your namespace and insert inserting them into the string. And to me, that is a little bit uh wonky. But now that I look at it again. It does seem like it would be useful, and uh, it doesn't seem so bad. I'm just so used to the string as a string, and then you perform operations on it, not, not this is an F string, and it's going to be expanded at runtime.
1: Well, um, it's going to be expanded instead of variables that are parameters. It's just going to be expanded with uh, variables in your context, which is, makes a lot of sense, and it's really convenient. It's almost like taking HTML templating right into your code. It's clean. It's beautiful. Uh, Dave Beasley did a, a uh, Python option. Yeah, the unfortunate office part out. is
0: I'm not going to be able to use this because I write code. I, well, I will. I will. Because yeah, now that I'm I'm, I'm making a switch now, so if I'm writing a new production project that's like, say, a web service, I'm writing it in 3. So I could use this for Python 3 now, and it would work. Um,
1: well, if you're talking projects. about debugging code especially, that's just like. Too simple to use. For
0: yeah, that. that's quite nice. It's quite nice. If anyone doesn't know, you can look up pep four nine eight, and it's literal string interpolation, and it outlines f strings. It's a string that starts with an with an f before the literal, and uh, you can you can put in curly braces the name of a variable, and it'll automatically expand. Uh, and just like before, you put a zero or a one, and then you'd pass them in as arguments to the format function. Uh, this just kind of automatically sticks sticks things in. It's, it's a formatted string, I assume, is what the F stands for.
1: Yes. But be sure to play with it, too, because not only can you put a variable name in there, but you can do all the um uh, uh REPL uh, uh, constraints. Okay. Like you can put...
0: Yeah, exclamation m- point R and stuff like that. Yes, yeah,
1: so you can put how many significant digits, how many... Uh, digits after a decimal point, uh, left or right justifying if it's a string. And if you really play with it, you'll discover that that'll those, save me some time. That those specifiers to the variable we put in the gra- curly braces can also be a variable. And as a matter of fact, you'll come to recognize that anything inside the curly braces can now be just simply an expression. And once you get that, then you get the beauty of it, I think
0: oh it can be any expression
1: you should play with how far you can go
0: yeah i see age plus one okay i didn't see that before
1: yeah so this is this this is effectively kind of like ginger templating exactly what i just said yes it's like bringing templating into your code and it just it just gets really simple to do things
0: that is very elegant i like that so i could put a function call in there too
1: you should try it. You should play with it.
0: So I could do len of a list and it would give me an integer. Yes. Okay, I'm sold. I'm sold. That's yes. a great idea. Yes. I think
1: I think the message here for listeners is read the pep and don't just take it at its simplest, but you really, look
0: look at the edge cases that yes, it's presenting because really those it are to the discover. cool yeah, there's age plus one. That's showing you a lot more than it appears. I was I was skimming right past that. Yes.
1: So when we had a, a an online uh, Python office hours with Beasley, he was really pushing it, and he he bumped into the limits. He kind of said, "Let's see how far we can take it." And it is it does have limits, but they're so far out there and it's so useful that the only he argument was probably
0: doing like inline lambda expressions and stuff like that yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I'm very confident that three is the future and that I think that int- but I think it's it's we're going to still have a little bit of this like uh, kind of like one foot in the water, one foot on land type of thing going on until 2020. Um, and even then, I think it's going to go on until like t- a little bit farther. I don't think it'll be as much of a problem because because uh, and the reason I say that is that we discussed this in the last episode with Joshua uh, Ginsburg. And uh, he works for Red Hat. And just because Python, the Python Foundation is going to be dropping support for 2.7 does not mean that Red Hat, for example, is going to be dropping support for 2.7. So 2.7 will live on for quite some time um, and we will need to support it. But I think that in the year 2020, it will be acceptable to write a new library that only supports python 3 uh and that's happening a lot now but i think it's a bit of a political statement when that happens you know you're alienating a lot of production users because a lot a lot of most production code that's running today is running in 2.7 because there's legacy code bases you know
1: Mm, yeah well that i think is uh, um let me put it this way and i'll get back into the psychology of teams again um uh, and and into uh, uh, the U.S. politics of recent age, there was some, um, somebody somewhere once posted something about why do people, why are people so uh, uncomfortable with uh, Donald Trump? And he had one of his w- uh, press briefings and somebody posted that every single point he made started with a negative. Know this, <laughs> know that, know that. and as opposed to an encouraging positive. And that has a psychological effect, just like when we were talking earlier about, you missed this about the protocol, versus, don't you know this with the protocol? What's wrong with you? Those those small errors like that have big effects. And I think when we talk about, well, there's still people using Q7, that statement makes people say, well, then I guess I will too. And uh, the thing is, is uh, I don't know, uh, uh, I know Beasley hadn't, because I've been talking to him uh, two days ago. I asked him, uh, or I'd mentioned to him, yeah, I got uh, Python 3.7 Alpha, it seems to be okay. I it, I'm running it, I'm actually using it. I've got 3.5, 3.6, 3.7, and 3.7 on my machine. And it typically is, I've used 3.6 most of the time as of this week. And now it's tell be IE in7 most of the time and if something doesn't work or I think it doesn't work, I pop that. Victor uh, Stinner, uh, author of the Perf package, has said that right now and it's only an alpha, a 7 is faster than. A so <clears throat> we need to focus people on the positives yes for, uh, Existing legacy code bases, it's a job to move ahead. For new stuff, you should just start with the current three version Python. And if you need to support legacy, you can more readily make Python 3 development too compatible than the other way around. So that should be the reason doing that. And if you have better performance and I, this may be just me or it may be the a nuke that I'm using, but I notice even on a interactive record, 3.7 is, feels snappier than 3.6. So this is the main reason I started using it mostly because I thought it was funny. I didn't think it was real and it's like, no, actually you can feel it's fast. Uh, so I'm I'm five, five, request it's, it's
0: CI against um, 3.7 as well. I'm curious if it's time is uh, is less. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, I just basically took, uh, since uh, Brett uh, announced that uh, uh, Python is on GitHub now, and I checked, and it's like, oh, good, all the tags are there, and I took down the GitHub uh, repo to build three five three six. And 3.7, I just built the head, and it's like, oh look, three seven learns great, and I've been using it, and it's three seven alpha. But I'm sure it'll break yeah. as people merge things in. But that's the whole point of having some of us using it and hollering early.
0: <coughs> yeah, and um, if you if you use Travis C. They have an environment available called 3.7-dev, and it'll just pull the latest dev version and uh, let you build against that. So I recommend that for people future-proofing things so that you don't have to go and scramble when 3.7 comes out. So requests, for example, is fully tested against 3.7, and as they make changes to the language, I'll know if anything breaks, and we'll fix them way ahead
1: of time. Yeah. That's cool.
0: So uh, is there anything else you want to talk about, Yarko?
1: Well, how much time do we have?
0: Well, these podcasts range from one hour to two hours. So uh, we can talk about anything or we can end now. It's up to you.
1: So I've got one more thing that has to do with the future of, of Python. Um, and um, I think um, it has to do with complexity and uh, APIs and the number of, you know, the size of your team, if you want to think of it that way, <clears throat> and the necessity to get things small. and async. And one of the comments I would make and one of the things I would hope to focus the core Python community on a little bit more, uh, because I think it's at least the people that I, have um, when I mention this to when I mention this to Yuri or Corey, they get kind of shocked. They don't quite get what I'm talking about at first. But on GitHub, there's a lot of people that are making libraries they are popular libraries be async-compatible so you can have an async version of my library and run it. And I said, well, that's because of the uh, legacy of applications that have built their own async approach. <clears throat> and then the shim library, getting it closer into the code, tries to unify them, but it hasn't gotten down to the core uh, REPL loop of Python itself. So we have to solve it out there in the sort of stratosphere, out in the layers. It's almost like it's upside down. And because... Yeah,
0: ideally you would write asynchronous code that could easily run synchronously.
1: Well, so my message is if the REPL loop was in itself inherently asynchronous from the inside out, and synchronous code was nothing more than the special case of async with one task, then the load of having to maintain two copies of libraries, I think that's gonna, as async becomes more and more important, that's going to become a very limiting factor. And uh, getting uh, the Python core to be async from the inside out, I think, implies dealing with um, what uh, Larry started on in that Yes. Getting rid of the go, gill. Golectomy. Go I think to me. That's, that getting rid of the gill but for the purposes of making the core from the inside out async is more important than most people yet realize for the future and the longevity of language because as we get into more and more Internet of Things, more and more small devices, more and more connectivity... I was thinking more along the lines will be left will be asynchronous because that's how you'll have to deal with that side.
0: I was thinking more along the lines of it's important for us to remove the gill because we can't increase our CPU power much more other than in parallelism. Um, I think in the future, in like ten years, I think you're going to be seeing desktops with you know thirty two, one hundred twenty eight cores, probably. And fully utilize those, uh, you can do that now if you use multi-process or subprocesses and and threads. Um, but you know you still have gil. So if you remove the gil, then you can really fully utilize the, the speed of which a computer can uh, can execute tasks. So I think that's important for the future of the language. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, and the other thing is um, educating people on the concepts of asynchronous programming. So, <clears throat> basically, and I'll speak as an electrical engineer now, uh, asynchronous programming is, if you think about embedded devices, it is just cooperative multitasking. And a typical uh, operating system kernel with a scheduler is preemptive multitasking. And each of those has their advantages and disadvantages, cooperative, if you have a task that blocks, it shuts everything down. In OpenStack, um, there is a a block storage project, the Swift project, that had big problems because of blocking that only showed up when physical hard drives began to fail, and so their time to respond was spikedly longer than usual. And the team that worked on it never quite got it. They rewrote that piece of code into Goal because Goal handled it. Gotcha. And so being, learning that when you write asynchronous code, having it in your head that what I'm doing is I'm doing very efficient and lightweight, basically process management because I don't have to save stacks and and do all this activation of stacks and moving things around, which is why it's performant and why I can do lots and lots of work. But it means those tasks have to cooperate. What happens if I think I don't have anything blocking in this function call, but there's some third-party library that calls yet another third-party library that once in a while blocks, and I'm not aware of it? How do I make robust code with that? So one of the differences that Curio has... One of the things that Curio has and one of the things I've pushed with uh, Beasley about is uh, the executive that runs the tasks in Curio, through our discussions he's pushed, well, I can spawn uh, tasks or I can spawn threads. And I said, oh, beautiful. So now it sounds a
0: lot like concurrency.futures.
1: What we can do is if I have a task that blocks, I can catch it and... And at runtime, promote it to a thread, which is expensive, but which is will make my program robust because it won't block. It'll just slow down through that one exceptional case where I can log it and make it not block by putting it into a thread. And so this yeah. whole concept of what do we need to do to program in highly efficient stuff and that awareness of um, cooperative Programming and the requirement for that, and how you handle exceptional cases. I think that's a, that's a, that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to playing with uh, more in the newest uh, releases of Curio.
0: It sounds to me like that's very similar to the approach that the concurrency dot uh, library uh, takes. Where it, and if anyone uses requests, it's a blocking library. Um, you can there's something called request futures which is available. And it allows you to create a request session that uh, effectively uses a a thread pool executor uh, if you want, or you can just use a standard uh, concurrency.futures executor, and it will return a future. So it'll give you back a response object that hasn't returned yet, and then you can call the result when it's available. And you can say, oh, I want it to send 10 at a time. I I can have there be 100 workers at a time. Uh, and you can add and remove things from the pool. So it's quite a robust library. I highly recommend it to anyone doing heavy-duty request work. Uh, and It sounds like Curio might be a good thing to play around with for that, too. I might have to yeah. experiment with writing so something.
1: In, in Curio, there's no futures, so there's no complexity uh, for the programmer to deal with keeping track of all that. So I Ideally, think... I
0: would just want a generator and I would have it have two options. It would just be like, give it to me back in order or give it back to me in random order. You know what I mean? And then it would just like execute all of them at the same time, uh, you know. And well, then... in sequence. Exactly, <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> and uh, and then it would just start yielding things back. And that, I think that would be, for requests, I think that would be a pretty good solution. And I could probably build that with Curio pretty easily, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'll check that out.
1: Yeah, so I would uh, I would suggest starting with um, um, Nate 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 Smith's uh, 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 long blog post from let's see, fifth of November, twenty
0: sixteen, and I think. Well, I'll just read the the Curio documentation, and hopefully, is robust enough to cover all the bases.
1: Yeah, it will uh, Nate will show you uh, the differences of approach between async I/O uh, and curio. So that'll give you an introduction there. I think uh, uh, Beasley stays away from talking about uh, async I/O pretty much altogether. He wants he wants to try and do a new paradigm. His his push as a you know a former CS professor is he wants to make it teachable, something people can easily get their heads around. It'll reduce complexity. Wow. <clears throat>
0: Do you want to switch to the fun part of the podcast now? Okay. What's the fun part? All right. Hasn't so this been a, fun? <laughs> this has been very fun, yes. But I was on a podcast recently where they asked me a really great question, and I've been asking it to a lot of my uh, co-hosts slash guests recently. Okay. And its uh, it was their top five. They had me list my top five uh, favorite things right now that are like media-related, so books, movies, TV shows, video games, things like that. And it, uh you know i i think it's a great thing to ask so i answered with like some of my favorite songs or albums of all time uh, so, some of my favorite books that i was reading right now uh or or of all time and uh like my favorite movie i just saw in theaters and stuff like that
1: huh so what was your favorite movie
0: uh my favorite movie right now is doctor strange i uh it's it's in theaters still and it's uh it's a fantastic Marvel superhero movie. And instead of it being like Iron Man, where he's like a really smart guy who gave himself powers or had some kind of like, um, weird nuclear accident or something, he is like dips into esoteric realms. So he has like, he does astral projection and stuff like that. And he deals with the etheric, uh, etheric stuff studies if you will so it's quite a quite an interesting superhero uh it's really it's a really great movie i really enjoyed it because i like i like reading about that stuff and it interests me so it
1: was great to see a marvel movie about it well that sounds great i saw uh, my my favorite recent one i saw was um um hidden numbers which hidden numbers yeah which is about the uh Human computers in the early uh, ah. space uh, program, uh, the African American women that were involved, and um, uh, how how they basically impacted things. There's a lot of a lot of interesting team and social and technical stuff all mixed into one. So that really suited me.
0: The uh, our two episodes ago had. Our our guest Richard Steams had the same answer. He said that was one of his favorite movies right now. I need to see that. Yeah, hidden, hidden numbers. Yeah, I saw that, and it looks it looks pretty good. Uh, so what what about books? What are your favorite
1: books? Wow, you know, um, I have not uh, in a couple of years really picked up a lot of books. I have started uh, reading. Do you have any
0: like historical like if you were to tell any like on your like put on your website your top five books or something like something that would go on that list?
1: Well, um, what I was going to say is uh, uh, Thomas Friedman's "Thank You for Being Late" is something I'm currently reading. And I'm kind of surprised at how much it sucked me in, um, <laughs> um, and I have an author. A friend who's written a lot of books, and I, uh, David Rico, he's a psychologist, but I like his um, You Are Not What You Think because it's about self-awareness and self-inspection. So that's a pretty good one.
0: Is it about the illusion of the self?
1: Uh, No, it's about acceptance of the self. So he talks Ah. basically about ego and when it gets healthy and when it's not healthy and how to quit running away from it, but how to embrace it and use it in healthy, functional ways, which basically gets into how you think about things and why you think about things and what drives when you think about things and how to basically get, you know, those reins in your hands. So it's very much a self-awareness thing.
0: Uh yeah, you've recommended quite a few of his books to me. I purchased a couple of them, but I haven't read them yet. I, I have a really bad habit of buying a lot of Kindle books, but never being in the mood to read them. Uh, but I I was in Books A Million last night, and I got inspired to read. And then I went home, and I, I didn't read. I decided to start collecting playing cards instead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I read so something I, about that, How about so you doing I, that.
0: I, I now have a collection of 50 different boxes of playing cards showing up at my house over the next week, uh, which I'm excited about. They come in so many cool designs and patterns and additions. Uh, I spent like six hours yesterday. You know, I like collecting small things. Like I have a collection of challenge coins. Um, and so I I needed, I wanted a new collection of something. So I, I thought a cool collection of of playing cards would be really, interesting to have because they, they have so many interesting designs on them, you know, and they have, uh, they just remind me of my childhood. Hmm. Uh, cause I played with cards a lot when I was a kid. I mean, I, I would like stack them up and I'd play war and solitaire and those are really the only games I ever played.
1: So you're talking was, about 52 card decks. Yeah. 52 card decks. And, and I got knuckle decks.
0: No, I did buy a pinochle deck cause my great grandmother used to play pinochle and my family would always play with her. Uh, I already have one, but it's on display in my apartment. So I got one to add to the collection. Uh, and I I got a bridge deck because my grandma plays bridge. Uh, she played with Bill Gates once, and she wow. Won. Yeah, she beat him. He wasn't very good, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> he had someone helping him. He apparently he's quite a he really enjoys playing bridge. And she said he was just like a normal guy, except he had extremely expensive shoes on
1: normal guy except street shoes that's funny
0: yeah he's a really nerdy normal guy but really really nice shoes uh and, and she also played with someone else famous at that same tournament i can't remember who it was but yeah so i i don't know i just i i haven't really touched a deck of cards since i was a kid so it just seemed like a fun idea so I, they make so many, Bicycle has had so many editions of their decks, it's incredible if you go look at them, you can find one for just about everything, so I uh, I bought, well I bought about 50 different decks yesterday, so.
1: <laughs> wow, 50, that's a lot of yeah. decks.
0: Yeah, they range in price from $2 to 20 and then... It, like there was one deck I found that was beautiful and it was just released last year by some company and it, it sold it was selling for ten dollars and they were sold out and now you can get it on Amazon for nine hundred bucks. But the uh but they're gonna be back in stock in uh in March. So I'm just gonna wait until March and then get it for ten bucks. So it's like a really beautiful black on black deck with like this like holographic imagery and stuff like that, where a lot of beautiful line art and it's just it's all about the art really it's cuz they're really beautiful pieces of art and people put a lot of typography work into them and there's so much history and they're effectively tarot cards uh they're based on tarot cards so they're kind of like this like occult tradition that's like been um sanitized for the masses and i don't know they just really interest me oh. so I really like them. It's based on the tarot deck, the the standard fifty two deck, uh, and you they're equivalent. You can look up the equivalence of a tarot deck and a fifty two card deck, and they all because if if you look at a tarot deck, they there's usually four major suits, and then all these special cards, and they're they're all in the regular deck too, but you can't just like play children's games with a tarot deck because they're like you know occult and stuff like that, so. Uh, I don't know. Cards just really fascinate me for some reason. So I thought it would be fun.
1: Yeah, it, it sounds like uh, almost an artistic venture.
0: Yeah, I think so. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I'm just going to look at them, I guess, or play solitaire. But I don't know. I think it'll just be fun to show people and bring them over to my family and stuff. You know. But anyway, uh, any other top five? Well, things you have?
1: Uh, as I'm thinking about it, there's um. Uh, a book I give out to people a lot, which people like and I like. It's almost like a coffee table book. Uh, David Viscott's uh, Finding Your Strength in Difficult Times. It's like these one-page, it's really uh, well-written, one-page sayings. Uh, uh, An example is, uh, maybe I'll spoil it by doing this, but uh, there's a a chapter, you can think of one-page or one-and-a-half-page things, as chapter called The Secret to Life. And you go to the page, and in something like four-point font, little tiny font that you have to get a magnifying glass to see, it says, in one little teeny line, the secret to life is there is no secret. It's all hard work.
0: <laughs> I, I had a feeling that's what the answer was going to be. Yeah.
1: So there's, there's, uh, it's just uh, a cleverly and densely and, in some cases, inspirationally written single pages. It's like a perfect bathroom book or a coffee table book or whatever or uh, even I actually usually give them to people when they're feeling down and out because it's the kind of thing you can find something that rings true to you, flip open to the page, and not only will you feel better, you'll actually laugh when you read it. So. I have
0: a book like that. Uh, it's by Kanye West, actually. He wrote a self-help book, and it's so hilarious because he's such a character. Are you familiar with him?
1: Mm. Uh, no, not with his books, no.
0: Well, no, he's not known for his books. Yeah. <laughs> he, he he has this one self-help book, and it's called uh, Thank You, Andrew, Welcome. And that's kind of like encapsulates his attitude towards life. Uh, and it, it's just all these little short sayings that he's kind of collected over the years of these little, like, colloquialisms. And uh, I think it's important for everyone to have a little bit of Kanye attitude in their life because he's <laughs> kind of... He's a little he he could be perceived as being a narcissist, but I think he's just really really confident in himself, you know, and a, a little bit of an asshole, but uh you know because he takes it to such an extreme. But he's a celebrity, you know, so that's kind of his job is to be a character. So it's a it's a good little read. I, I enjoy it. The, each page just has like one little saying on it, and then an explanation. Like there's no such thing as a free lunch, for example. Uh, in business you know like if someone's giving you something for free always be wary of it and uh, it has a bunch of great stuff like that but anyway
1: <clears throat> well cool. uh, there's probably one more uh, and it's out of print but it's also by the uh, uh, psychologist that I hired at Motorola when I did the the my on to over a thousand people for the uh, tech review stuff and the book's called Uh, connecting with self and others and uh, Miller for, Sherrod Miller wrote that, 25 years has been bugging me to uh, resurrect and do what I did back then and I actually think I'm going to start doing that, hopefully uh, at PyCon Ukraine in April uh, if there's enough people interested I'll give a day long workshop on how to uh, connect in open source communities so if anybody's interested in in that or anything like that, uh, uh, look up uh, uh, my website I'll have up next week, uh, connectable.us. Oh, that's that's a good domain name. Yeah, well, it's on topic. So between that and async, those are the two things that interest me now is is, uh, uh, teams and teaming and and collaborating and the same thing at the program level
0: mention that Yarko is available for hire at the moment, right?
1: Yeah, maybe, unless I start doing workshops. I know uh, <laughs> Miller and Rico want me to just go off and do workshops and start writing books. Either way.
0: Excellent. Uh, then there was a, one other topic I forgot to touch on that I thought would be just really interesting for you to briefly discuss uh, before we close out. And it was the fact that you, you mentioned before the show that you were involved in, in the precursor to the Unicode standard.
1: Oh, yes.
0: Yes, I worked And on. I just think that that's a, an incredible piece of history that you got to A, witness, and B, be a part of.
1: Yeah, so you're talking about when I met uh, uh, the VP and the team from the AT&T uh, Japanese Application Environment Team is what it was called. When they were presenting at Usenix, how they were going to do what wound up being like Unicode. But they were starting, obviously, with uh, multibyte, non-Latin alphabet representation. And at the time, I happened to be working on... um,
0: And the initial target was Japanese,
1: right? Yeah, the Japanese business environment. The whole team actually was, I think, in Tokyo at the time. They were there for two or three years because they wanted to be in the context of their potential users as they were developing business systems for use uh, uh, back then.
0: That's really nice that they, did, did they have computers in Japan at that point that used Japanese or no, w- were no, they no, trying no, to approach it from did. a standard perspective first? No, nobody what? did.
1: Everything, you know, computers came from, if you think about Unix and PCs, that all came from the US. So everything worldwide was ASCII. Why do you think, you know, so many of the uh, tech conferences, the PyCon conferences around the world are presented in English, because most yeah, yeah. computer talk, because of those roots, started out with English language books, and even terms in other languages that are computerish, most of the time they didn't get translated, they got transliterated. The, the yeah. sounds got transferred, and that's, bite is bite. The world I, I don't over. think
0: that's something that America really takes credit for, is the invention of the computer.
1: Yeah, or, or that we're aware of.
0: No, I don't think so. I've, I've never really thought of that. I always hear jokes about like in movies about you know what America versus France is responsible for and stuff like that. and uh, lit- you know computers is not one of them, or the internet. <laughs> yeah. But you can uh,
1: see you can see the big business, uh, so the very first UNIX systems were the very first multi-user systems. I mean it's no more uh, do your accounting by taking Fortran uh, punched card decks over to some window and waiting half a day for a printout. It was sit at a terminal and type in uh, the billing stuff that your customer has so far this month so you can tell them while you're on the phone with them. So the business so, imperative for how do we sell this to all these marketplaces where we can't speak their language was huge.
0: So were you excited when, like, I don't know, I don't know what the first major Unicode standardization was, but I know UTF... 8 and UCF-16, 32 are the standards now. When, when those came about, is, does that like blow your mind how far they took that, where you can have like almost an infinite number of characters represented?
1: It, it does, and the way I met the people from uh, the AT&T Japanese application environment is I was working on encoding um, oriental languages and adding phonetic stuff training so that you could have somebody speak in a microphone and, and judge whether they their pronunciation was good or not. And um, so the whole... So, so
0: you were using character tables to represent phonetic phonemes,
1: well, basically. Well, we were taking uh, um, two-byte representations and turning them into four-byte representations and inserting uh, phonetic encoding ourselves. I mean, it was Oh, just, I see. Yeah, it's I just see. like, what can you use this information for real-time when it's streaming. Oh, yeah. excellent. Yeah, so that whole, that before Unicode, that possibility of, hey, it's just data, what can we use it for? If we're going to modify how it's encoded internally, we have to be able to handle everything about converting to our encoding and converting it back and then utilizing it. Everything has to know how to talk that. I mean, that was a big realization, how much work it is. A lot of nations had their own encoding standards for uh, printing industry and unifying all of those. I mean, it's a, it was a huge, huge step.
0: Yeah, we've come a long way, and I, I guess we're done. I, I, from what I understand, I don't know if there's any more work that needs to be put into... I mean, we have emojis. And
1: <laughs> yeah, well, well, we're done to the extent that the major steps are there. There's bumps. I mean, obviously, when you some of the discussions between Python 2 and 3 have been about in character encoding. So yeah. uh, I think in any programming language, when you get down, you know, the devil is always in the details. When you get down to small instances, you run into, well, this encoding doesn't quite cover something or there's uh, something that isn't specified or there's something that's dually specified and it doesn't usually create problems except. So I think we're to that level of it now, which is Okay. I mean, it's functional. We've got useful stuff worldwide.
0: Yeah, I, I started experimenting with the N, uh, NLTK library recently for uh-huh. the first time, and it was a lot of fun. I have a, a website I made that's just kind of like a Amazon referral website, just to see if I can make some money on the side from Amazon. Yes. And it just takes the Amazon descriptions and then runs them through NLTK to get synonyms to WordNet, and it you know, it changes, uh, 50% of the time it changes the the words to a different synonym. And the results are kind of funny, but it's uh, it's just a lot of fun that you can do that. And from what I understand, you can't really do that with other languages. It's mostly English that you're able to do that with. Uh, There are corpora available for other languages, but it's not nearly as extensive
1: as it is for English. Oh, because the English, uh, the Oxford English Language Dictionary with all the history... I think that's one of the oldest written dictionaries in the world.
0: Yeah, we yeah we also responsible for founding the dictionary, I believe, aren't we? Uh, was Webster the first dictionary there was? I or? don't
1: know. I think I don't know. Something makes me want to say that Persian, but that may be because of mathematics. But that's not completely true. Uh,
0: I know he. I know. I know Webster invented the American or the English dictionary, but I don't. I don't know if he invented the dictionary itself. I'll have to look it up. That's an interesting thing to research. It is a
1: very interesting topic.
0: Anyway, all right, cool. Well, that's a great show. Thank you so much for joining Yarko. Uh, Thanks for having me. Any piece of advice you have for any of our Python listeners?
1: Uh, Yes. Uh, Appreciate how much you can get done interactively and use Python 3.
0: Use Python 3, yes.
1: Yeah. And, and yeah. learn async. Async is the future.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to look at Curio, and I, I have a tendency personally to want to stick to the standard library because I think it's going to be what people are going to use. Well, um, so I'd rather stick to async I/O personally. But um,
1: okay, so I'll I'll have a word about that. So async I/O is an interim library standard, and I know internally. One of the problems is all the things in the standard library are too many. So from a management perspective, I know there are forces within the Python community that want to push a lot of standard library things out of the standard library. Yeah, we want to make it smaller instead yeah. of bigger. And so the encouragement of Curio is, oh, we have two libraries that do this. That's good enough reason to start saying it doesn't need to be in the standard because there's more than one way of doing it gotcha so don't get too hung up on async io being in the standard library that's right it's still at an interim status i forgot about that however uh i think async is important enough that it is whatever you choose to use it is important at least in the python context to get moderately familiar with both of those libraries to understand their differences because whichever one you end up using. You will learn by the comparison and that yeah. learning you will apply in whichever library you wind up using so that and
0: the, the fact alone that curio is as fast as g event is mind-blowing to me so i'm going to check it out for sure
1: and it's going to just get fa- it's going to be getting faster so
0: <laughs> so it might be the pi pi of concurrency <laughs> i wonder i wonder if he's done benchmarks on pi pi i bet it's even faster on pi pi
1: i couldn't answer that I I almost guarantee that it is. Yeah, you'll, you'll have to it, invite him in and ask him yourself.
0: Yeah, he would be a great guest on the podcast. I'll have to uh, I'll have to do an interview with him soon. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining, Arco. Uh, it was great talking to you, and thanks to all of our listeners. We will talk to you soon.
1: All right.